0: Before we begin this week's episode, we wanted to invite you to a free event at our seminary on March 18th. Every spring, DBTS hosts a theological lecture on current issues in Christianity. Speakers include recognized theologians and pastors with a commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. This year, we are excited to welcome Dr. Joel Beakey of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary to present a series of lectures on criticism in pastoral ministry. You can find out more and register at dbts.edu backslash rice. The day before Rice Lecture Series on March 17th, we will host a preview day for prospective students. This event will give you the opportunity to sit in on classes, meet our faculty and alumni, and get a taste of Detroit. Prospective students are encouraged to stay the night and then attend the Rice Lecture Series the next day. Meals and housing are provided. If you or someone you know is considering seminary, you can find out more at dbts.edu backslash preview day. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through his word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding his word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and in this episode we'll be discussing lessons from the early history of American fundamentalism. My guest this week is once again Dr. David Doran, President of DBTS and Senior Pastor of Intercity Baptist Church. Dr. Doran, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Ben. Now, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to discuss the early history of fundamentalism is that we view ourselves at DBTS as flowing out of the streams of, of uh, fundamentalism here in America, and we view ourselves as, as being a historically fundamentalist institution. And, and you often uh, talk to the students that are just starting at our seminary, helping them to kind of understand what our seminary is, and you walk through different ways that we need to, to think about our seminary and how that affects our thinking of doctrine. Would you be willing just to, to briefly share that uh kind of how you walk through that.
1: Sure. Uh, as a part of our orientation for the new students, uh, I want to just sort of see if we can get us all thinking the right way. So I, I draw a series of concentric circles and moving from what I would say is the sort of the broadest labeling of ourselves down into the narrow. So uh, I start with actually Christian, right? Because that, you know, we would, would be followers of Christ, believe in the gospel, um, but then I put inside of that fundamental, right, we are fundamentalist, uh, because not all Christians believe that there are essential doctrines, uh, that, that there is a core of belief, which you cannot deny. And that's a part of the history, right? So fundamentalist modernist controversy was among professing Christians. And the debate was really over what is the genuine nature of Christianity. So that's why I think it's it's right to call it we we would advocate for biblical Christianity, a, a Christianity as presented in the scriptures, not as a primarily a sentiment or religious thing. So Christian fundamentalist and then we would be separatist. Because not everyone who's fundamental in doctrine would think that you need to separate from those who deny those doctrines, and that's a part of what we talked about in the in a couple of previous podcasts. And then, you know, then we're Baptist seminary because not all fundamental separatists are Baptist, and and we actually are also a dispensationalist seminary. So, not all fundamental Baptists are dispensationalists. So that's a more narrow scope and and then i put inside there word calvinistic we you know we are clearly um uh, we see god's sovereignty in the gift of salvation uh you know so so in that sense those become important identifiers of us but they also um would determine uh, issues of cooperation and or separation right we mm-hmm. would feel obligated to separate from those who deny fundamentals of the faith. Uh, we couldn't partner together as a pastor, right, to plant a church is going to require some more agreement just than that we're fundamentalist mm-hmm. because of polity issues. So not, and this I think is the important part of it, is that not, not every important doctrine is a fundamental doctrine. Right. The mode of baptism, I think, is an important doctrine, but it's not the difference between whether you accept a, an essential element of Christianity or not. Right, mm-hmm. the deity of Christ—you um, can't deny and be a Christian. You can be improperly baptized, mm-hmm. right, and and not lose out on heaven, kind of a thing. And and I think fundamentalists always so recognize that. That's why it was really sort of a Transdenominational movement at the time. It answered the apostasy within Christendom. And therefore, it was an answer by those who were Orthodox Christians. That was the thing that united fundamentalists so that you could have Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, uh, Bible church folks. They would all stand together in those conferences opposed to apostasy and and heterodoxy because that was the battle that they were facing at that time. Uh, later on, other issues started to be, you know, come into the equation. But, uh, m- you know, my mentor and our, the president of the seminary before me, Dr. McCune was very clear, a very strong separatist fundamentalist, but very clear that there were certain non-issues in fundamentalism as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. He actually wrote an article, uh, one of the first editions of the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal, in which he, he pointed that out, that as fundamentalists, you recognize there is crucial doctrine, there's essential doctrine that you have to believe, but that there's also things that fundamentalists have agreed to disagree on, even not because they're not important, but because they don't rise to that same level. Can, can we maybe just talk through some examples of what would be not fundamental doctrine, not right. issues in fundamentalism.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, his list of included things like versions, text types, uh, uh, denominational distinctives and polity issues, uh, Calvinist, Arminian in the sense of no one's denied the orthodoxy, right? So so there there are orthodox people who are not fully Calvinistic or uh I mean, clearly there's groups on both ends that, that can can have problems. Uh, Dr. McCuny included pre-mill dispensationalism stuff and and acknowledged that uh, fundamentalism had a very strong tilt toward pre-mill dispensationalism because it came out of the Bible conference movement, but that there were clearly fundamentalists like T.T. Shields, though Machen didn't embrace the the title fundamentalist was clearly arguing for that side of the equation against the modernist. Uh, the free Presbyterian movement wasn't distinctively pre-Mills. So, so it really wasn't a historic marker that you had to be a dispensationalist to be a fundamentalist, or you had to be pre-Mill to be a fundamentalist. That, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, then there were later controversies in the, in the, You know 20th century in the mid 80s there was a controversy over the in the technical way would be the moral efficacy of the physical blood of christ and um you know so you had people wanting to write other people out of fundamentalism because they they had a different view uh regarding that and and i think some of the ways people were espousing things it did start to call into question uh, their Christology, right? If if Jesus didn't have human blood, then was he fully human? Mm. So I think it could be could have you know in some cases it became heresy, but but differences on uh, nuanced interpretation of some of that, uh, even questions connected to uh, lordship, non lordship, in the you know in the center of that debate, you're you had good people who were trying to handle texts and interpretations obviously there were people at the edges of the debate who were pressing things farther and farther and starting to step into heretical but but there was collegiality throughout the first you know five six decades
0: as people wrestled with some of those interpretive issues yeah and so the the fundamentalists were those who who recognized There are some doctrines that you cannot deny and still have any credible claim of Christianity. There are other doctrines that are important but we disagree out, agree about, but but there are certain ones that you you have to hold to. Right. And and that was one of the marks of fundamentalism. Dr. McCune, in another article he wrote about the self-identity of fundamentalism, highlights two other marks of fundamentalism. One was militancy. Right. and the other was ecclesiastical separation. Now we have kind of talked about ecclesiastical separation in the previous two podcasts. What about the idea of militancy? Why would that have been a mark of fundamentalism? Right.
1: Well, I think I think um it really goes comes down to say like Jude 3, right? Earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So uh the the language there is militant. Right. You're you're doing battle, you're contending for the faith or like in Titus one, the role of pastors to refute those who contradict and even says their mouths must be stopped. So so it it was a kind of aggressive defense of the faith and propagation of the truth. Right, It's not something that you can be passive about or indifferent toward. I mean, um, language of struggle for ministry in the new testament is is very frequent paul you know paul talks about the struggle of the gospel ministry and struggle for uh the the protection for instance of the of the believers at Colossae, that he struggles for them in his defense and and desire to see them be presented perfect in christ so so it's a it's a Uh, I mean, clearly it had a part of the, sort of the, you know, the reason for existence for fundamentalism, if you go back to where the name came from, right? I mean, uh, Curtis Lee Laws in 1920 said, fundamentalists will be those who do battle royal for the fundamentals of the faith. I mean, they they basically were saying, we're in a fight, Mm -hmm. right? Liberalism has... Uh, worked its way into our convention, the Northern Baptist Convention, and we need to rise up to to do battle to fight against it. And and that's that's I think a biblical spirit, earnestly contend for the faith, right? Strive against those things. Um, clearly, some people, um, you know, because sinners are a part of any movement, right? Uh, Perhaps at times a besetting sin among those who you know who are going to do battle for the truth is that they they that sometimes they've tolerated belligerent people or they've they've uh, not known when to put the sword away, mm-hmm. right? So so yes, there uh, no doubt. But you you if you want to find fault, you can find people who never pulled the sword out. And let apostasy just ravage God's people and churches. I mean, the the issue isn't um, who has done this perfectly. <laughs> the issue is what does the Bible require of us, and we are supposed to contend and mm-hmm. and we're supposed to stand opposed to error and not give it any um, make peace with it.
0: Yeah, and and as you looked at the. Early fundamentalists, I think you see all three of those things being manifest in different ways the, that they're holding to the fact that there are orthodox beliefs that you have to hold to. We're going to fight for these things. And if necessary, we are going to be willing to separate at some point. Right. And people have divided uh, fundamentalism in different ways. Marsden kind of divided them into four categories uh, and time periods. You had a uh, time period of kind of the rise of fundamentalism that, that went late 1800s into 1919 and we had the bible conference movements rise of bible institutes like moody bible institute and places like that and you mentioned 1920 is often a point in which we we say there's now the fundamentalist modernist controversy there's there's conflict going on there's there's battles going on in the northern baptist convention and the presbyterian church uh you have the fundamentalist fellowship rising up trying to to push for fundamentals of the faith within northern baptist convention uh Machen is is fighting for orthodoxy among presbyterians and, and over time it seems most of those battles were lost that right. they they weren't able to actually fight off the liberalism the modernism that had come into the the, the denominations and and so many of those churches either pulled themselves out or were kicked out right. by these denominations because they weren't willing to to hold in hold uh, to, to compromise on on the the faith of christianity and then they began to form their own bible colleges and seminaries and and mission agencies and that really happened from the 1929 to the 1940s in that period as you look through that history are there any truths that you think it's going to be important for us to to draw out lessons that we should be learning um, through what happened in that time period
1: right yeah I mean there's lots of things um, that that I think would we would really do well to to understand and think about because I do think we're in a very similar kind of battle and day in our in our time and um, let me just start with that militancy thing right so I think the militancy means you're not going to be content to tolerate. Apostasy and heresy. So you will either uh, you will either uh, drive it out or you will pull out. And I think that's that's that was the heart of the militancy, right? The the well, we didn't win, so let's just find a way to get along. Is not a militant spirit. Right. You, you can't make peace with error. And, and so I think that's important because there's a lot of folks, um, who, who are, uh, much too accommodating and, uh, and their, their inclination is to, uh, be peacemakers at points where you can't make peace, right? Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And it never depends on us to make peace with apostasy, right? That's when we have to, we have to be willing to stand. And I think that part of it, uh, and if I'd say this is, I mean, uh, what I see sometimes is people who've come from combative backgrounds almost are allergic to doctrinal, conflict right and and that makes them susceptible to to thinking that that they can they can navigate it but but i mean second corinthians 11 is the messengers of satan appear as angels of light, and and most error does not proceed openly and uh waving you know waving a red flag for us it it comes in uh, by deception and subtleness, erosion of doctrinal things and militancy. Uh, it shouldn't, we shouldn't become cynical and we shouldn't be hyper suspicious, but we certainly can't be naive, right? The prudent foresees the evil and passes by the naive goes on and is punished. And, and when this has happened time after time, it it's a, it's an argument for a militant spirit to be on defense and ready to do it graciously but firmly right with clarity and conviction yeah. uh, but also recognize that people arrive at conclusions on different different paces right and and that part of it i think is uh, also important you look back say at um the you know so the The first wave of fundamentalists are convinced that they need. We've reached the point where we have to pull out and they pull out. Yet there were others that were still fighting. They were still being militant, but they they hadn't given up hope yet. Right. So what always seems to happen is the the uh, the people who pull out immediately think everybody else has to do the exact same thing that they've done. And they may be right. Historically, they tend to end up being proved right, but that's not that's not really the test. The test is, are you still remaining faithful, right? So, so I, I think I mentioned last time. You know, GRBC is 1932. The Conservative Baptist Association is 1947. So there's 15 years while there where there's churches that are still trying to save their state associations, still trying to fight on the ground to to make it work and then they come to the conclusion they they need to pull out too Mm -hmm. right and and that left a pretty strong fracture between those those two groups for a long a long time then when the cba uh actually wasn't 14 years or so and they abandoned separation and um and basically you had a pull-out from there, and you ended up having a couple different groups form out of that because they responded differently to it. But even you know, like the American Council of Christian Churches in 1941, I think it is, forms uh, to actually be a group of fundamentalist churches and ministries that can uh, be a counter to the federal council of churches because it really had to do with like broadcasting rights and all those kinds of things. So the ACCC was very separatist and it was a fundamentalist group. But the year after it, another group, the National Association of Evangelicals was still fundamentalist, but was taking a slightly different tack and and that group uh, those two groups um you know started to have more and more tension toward each other and eventually some of the uh, strong fundamentalists in the nae ended up pulling away from it but they originally were more committed to uh sort of the positive focus of it right i mean um, very few people question, say, the separatist credentials of Bob Jones, Sr. and Bob Jones, Jr., but they were a part of the NAE, not the ACCC, which was Carl McIntyre. Uh, and Dr. Bob Jones, Jr. was the elected vice president of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1950. But then the 50s happened and you had full blown new evangelicalism. And so um, uh, the tide turned and the circumstances changed, right? So, so I think that's the part we have to see is because sometimes what uh, it can happen to me is people want to go, well, I want to be a fundamentalist, but the kind that there was in 1920. And, and, and they don't recognize that the, the early 1900s presented one kind of challenge, right? The 1950s presented a different kind of challenge the 1990s uh, presented a uh, another kind right and the 2020s present uh, an altogether different so what's what's the response of a biblically orthodox contending for the faith in the time and place in which we live and and allow uh, make the case i guess i'd say is make the case because if you should be militantly defending this position, you can do it biblically. Mm-hmm. So make the biblical case as to why uh,
0: the right response is to reject this and to pull away from it. And it can be difficult to to distinguish. I can say it this way between someone who is a fellow militant uh, person who's going to fight for the faith right. and someone that Machen called an indifferentist. Right. And and one of the the reasons perhaps why the fundamentalists were not able to to push out unbelief in the denominations in the 1920s was you had many people who at least you know would profess to believe in orthodox christianity but weren't willing to fight about it weren't going right. to to make a big deal about it and so what you don't want to do is you don't want to to look at someone who's saying hey i'm fighting about this i just don't think it's time to pull out yet and accuse them of being someone who doesn't care and isn't willing to fight right. and, and and instead of working together at some level you end up fracturing and creating enemies that really shouldn't be your enemy right yeah yeah
1: and i think i think the indifferentist stance um is the one uh, is not acceptable mm-hmm. right it, it'd be like and i think the, the analogies are about church discipline right so you have You have someone in the church who clearly needs to come under the process of discipline that that Jesus teaches about. And so you're walking through the process, you know, private confrontation, private conference. Then it goes to public announcement. And in Matthew 18, it's if he refuses to listen, if he won't listen, if he won't listen. Right. So you're you're ready as a church to move to exclude them. And somebody keeps going, oh, but maybe they're listening. Maybe they're you know, maybe let's be more patient. Let's wait. And and nobody should do it. Nobody wants I should want to do it in a snap judgment. But at some point, if someone is merely letting you talk to them, but they have no intention of acting on the truth then they're not listening, right? So in a confrontation, if I could draw the analogy, on um, over apostasy, and you confront them with orthodoxy to show the error of their position, and they'll talk with you about it, you know, till you're blue in the face, but they keep holding to the heresy. At some point, that has to be expelled. Mm-hmm or it has to be withdrawn. But the tendency is for people to go, well, you know, especially in our day, well, it's nuanced. It's more complicated than that. It's, you know, we need to be patient. We need to, you know, we need to let the spirit of God do that, you know, this. And and all of a sudden it gets under kind of piety that effectively, holds hands with people who de- deny essential doctrines and and it's that middle of the road position uh that probably has caused the 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 biggest damage mm-hmm. right i mean the i think it's important to remember separation is produced by the people who are teaching error right they've turned away from the faith so if there's a division that comes, it's because they've turned away from the faith. It's not the separatist fundamentalist issue. And, and not dealing with the problem uh, is, is disobedience. So the, uh, the person who wants to make peace between truth and error is not acting uh, in a godly way. It's, you know, um, I mean, obviously it can be overused, but I mean, you know, when when Moses says who's on the Lord's side, that's because people had to make a choice. Or, you know, Elijah says if the Lord's God serve him, I mean, it's the people who are trying to park in the middle that actually cause great damage to the cause of the gospel and the truth. They're they're wanting to synthesize third way options right They're they're gonna have the you know the via media which resolves the tension and it usually ends up compromising the truth because uh, the scriptures draw lines right mm-hmm. discern between good and evil not good evil and some hybrid and and i think we have to recognize there's truth and there's
0: error and god's people have to stand on the side of the truth yeah and you mentioned separation is an important thing because it's obedience to God. But at one level, too, you wonder if, if the early fundamentalists had perhaps been willing to separate earlier, if they could have preserved some of the, the structures in the denominations. And our previous episode, we actually talked about Strong and, and how he— helped undermine the Northern Baptist Convention in some ways by allowing liberals to, to start teaching at Rochester Seminary. And if in the 1800s there'd been a stronger push to get these people out, that perhaps you could have saved the, the language of fundamentalism, both the faith and the furniture. Right, But the indifferentists, these people who were saying, you know, hey, let's not make a big deal about these kinds of things, both abandoned the faith and the furniture in the end in right. right that way.
1: Yeah and I think uh, obviously it's you know it's hard to tell exactly what would have happened I think the the problem um and, and I don't know if this is the best way to say it right but but a person can seem spiritual while embracing heresy right and and that's that's a part of the tension because they're not you know the, the the apostate is seldom a full blown atheist, right? Or or rejecting the form of religion, they're denying the power of it, and and so it's really hard to uh, to get the leaven out before it starts to leaven the lump, mm-hmm. and and so it's it's. Uh, it's pernicious right i mean the apostle paul had a very powerful and fruitful ministry yet among the churches of galatia he was concerned about how quickly they had turned right he he says to the corinthians like you'll tolerate this abuse of you <laughs> you know and and he uh he warns and warns and warns because it it's like a gangrene he says in the pastoral epistles and so there's a part of it that's like you know the the cancer the cancer of error happens below the surface and 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 it's hard sometimes to to spot it paul warned the church leaders at ephesus the elders there'll be savage wolves but some from your own midst right so i i just think it's uh, it's constant vigilance and and guarding ourselves against the the threat and and when spotted taking action because we are given pastors are given the responsibility to guard the flock and i think um and this, again, I come back to the primacy of the local church. I think it's a lot easier to do in the local church. And the problem is, is when we get these parachurch entities, is that tends to be where the problems develop, right? It's cooperative effort, cooperative money. Then, then you know, well, we need more money. So we go lowest common denominator. And then, and then, uh, you can watch the justifications. Well, look at, we're still, you know, we're sending millions of dollars to the mission field, or we're, we've got these great schools that we're supporting, and most of it's good. Yeah. You know, maybe there's a few problems, but most of it's good. Mm. And, and you keep whistling in the dark about that. And, and then all of a sudden, it's not mostly good. Right. All of a sudden you find out that that these things have been being taught and they've actually sowed the seeds of unbelief in in an entire generation before you wake up about it. And those teachers are loved. Those mission leaders are loved. Those denomination executives are loved. So now who wants to turn against the person that they hold in high regard because they seem so godly and they seem so you know, so devoted to Jesus because we think they're going to look like Satan with horns (laughs) and, and God tells us they're going to come as angels of light. So yeah, they're going to be nice. They're going to be pleasant. They're going to, they're going to seem spiritual, but is it Jesus? Is it the gospel? Is it the Holy spirit? Those things require us to put things to the test. And, and
0: and do so with attentiveness and aggressiveness. And as you mentioned, this is important for us to think about because in many ways we're facing similar kinds of issues and similar kind of questions. Right, absolutely. And, and Lord willing, in coming episodes, we'll, we'll try to flesh some of that out more as well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Theologically Driven. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to share it with someone else that you think might benefit from it. You can find out more about our podcast or Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. We look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.